mentally knowing that like a medal is slipping away from it and you literally can't move your legs any faster it's just like the worst thing in the world OTB AM live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app a warm welcome please Michael Owen everyone You are very welcome to Dublin. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Yeah, no, we appreciate it. We appreciate it. So look, we're going to have a few laughs and talk about fun stuff as well, but there's no point trying to ignore the fact that we all have tough times in our lives. So <laughs> for instance, for instance, there would have been a time in your life when you would have heard, Dad, I'm going on Love Island. <laughs> I thought that was coming. We're sorry to do this to you, Michael. I didn't know what you were talking about at the start. And as soon as I thought, this is coming, yeah. Yeah. But she, like Gemma was amazing on Love Island. I watched the whole thing, I'm not afraid to say. And she came across so well and she was the youngest contestant. I thought she was so beyond her years and how she came across. Yeah, thanks. It's, um, it wasn't the best of uh, conversations when she first asked me, I must admit. But uh, on a serious note, I had no worries about her. She's, uh, she's pretty sensible and she's a good kid. And uh, I had no worries. I didn't bring myself to watching some of the challenges and things like that. I don't like seeing my daughter kissing other people. <laughs> um, but in general, I, uh, I probably watched 30, 40% of the show. Okay. And, uh, and on the days that I didn't watch, I was on, to the, on the phone to uh, the wife at, at five past 10 saying, how did she do? And uh, no, it's been great feedback and she's, she's done well. And uh, she was 50-50 where to go on in the first place. Right. But I think it's, uh, it's been good for her. And you know, she's, uh, she's had a good time. I suppose the scary thing from your point of view is not so much how she'll do, it's how will this be edited? How will it be received? And you would have a deep understanding of fame at a young age and it's not an easy thing. No, no, it's not. Uh, I suppose that the one thing that I was concerned about, I had no worries about her. Mm. I was concerned about the stigma, maybe. People saying, oh, you're, you know, your daughter going on that. And, um, because we've, I've not watched it personally in the past, but I've heard about it. And I've, I, I, yeah. you know, we all know. Yeah. <laughs> 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 we all know what, uh, what people are perceived. Like going on it, and uh, and that was my uh, my main worry. I'm going to be an avid watcher from now on. I can tell you now, I've seen it. <laughs> there is that fear, I suppose, uh, fame at a young age. What way it'll go for you at 17? You signed your first professional contract with Liverpool. Yeah, and actually, in the in the days after, it's actually reminded me because don't get me wrong, I still semi in the public eye doing the TV and things like that. But it has reminded me a lot. When you read the, I mean, there's virtually an article about her every day in some showbiz magazine or, or newspaper. And the inaccuracies of it all is unbelievable. It just reminded me of, of, uh, of, of when I was 17, mm -hmm. when I was 18. And it yeah. felt like there was an article about you every day. And it was like, that's so wrong. It's so inaccurate. It, it's, it's, it's amazing what, what people do. Because if they can't get the news themselves, then, of course, they will, will make a lot of it up. So, um, but it has, it's, it's, uh, it's made me realize what it was like and uh and but she's handling it fine and and she's uh but she's really a, a, a home girl she loves being at home and she's since she's been uh, away she's come back and she's had to be in london for a few days doing different bits and bobs as part of the the itv contract but she can't wait to get back home and start riding a horse again yeah. she said um, that the whole way through yeah, yeah she just yeah i mean and she's got 
dogs and horses and everything else that she's just missed like mad. So she can't wait to just get back to a bit of normality now. And I presume fun to see the blank faces when your name was mentioned, the new generation who were like, who? <laughs> <laughs> well, this Who's is the dad? thing now. I, I'm walking down the street and, and people are going, that's Gemma Owens, Dad. <laughs> like, you what? <laughs> <laughs> I've got ammunition here if anyone wants to say it. <laughs> uh, 1998, it's amazing. I mean, talk about fame. Boom. It was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you were on the show a couple of years ago when we were chatting in the studio and something you said always stuck with me. Uh, you, you arrived home and you remembered even, like, I think it was your brother or somebody. You almost caught him, like, just looking at you, like, <laughs> reassessing, oh, my God, I live with a superstar now and, and both wonderful and slightly alienating. Yeah, and, and you know what, I wanted, I wanted to push this uh, Love Island stuff, but I'll go back to it just for one more. <laughs> I was conscious of that when I was watching it, because, of course, my, I've got three other children, and, and their sister was on the telly, and everybody in school talking about their sister and things like that, and I was conscious of what happened to me, and I was sort of making sure they realised that it's, it's just Gemma, it's just our, you know, my daughter, their sister, and she's just a normal person, and, and of course... When she gets out, you're going to be walking down the street with her and, and they're going to be, people are going to be asking for photos and, and different bits and bobs. But I was conscious of that, that everybody in the house, when she comes back, she's just what she was. She's no different. Um, and, uh, because, yeah, when I came back from, in 98, I didn't feel different as a person myself. I still desperately wanted to come home. I wanted to go training again and play for my club again and, and see my mum and dad and friends. It was... It's the way people are with you, not the way you are with, with people. People mm -hmm. see you in a different way because of fame. So I was very conscious of that. And is that a difficult thing, an alienating thing, or was it, was it fine? It's just, it was your life and that's it? Well, it changes your life. It certainly changed my life coming back um, as an 18-year-old. The attention, the, the, the intrusion. I think back then as well, I mean... We live in a society now whereby people can argue all they like about, you know, where's the most pressurised and things like that, because now, of course, you've got social media, but you have far less publications now um, than when, when I was uh, 18 coming back. So there was dozens and <laughs> it felt like dozens of papers all trying to fight for that um, different story and, and there was press that would, you know, delve into personal life and things like that. Whereas nowadays, newspapers are on the decline. I think there's, it's much more social media driven. So it's a different thing, but I had to sort of, or we had to in those days, sort of, you know, deal with, with press more so than, than... Now it's about they can build their own image. Whatever they, they can type something and within five seconds they can create whatever they want to create people of today whereas we were dictated to and of course I came back from the 98 World Cup and there was a story everybody wanted to create one devil and one angel of course you know one man David Beckham got sent off and I was an 18 year old fresh face kid that, that just scored a, a, a goal so there was this sort of this fella's whiter than white and that stuck throughout my career which help sometimes, but hindered sometimes as well. Um, so, but that was it. I, I had no control, or we had no control of how people were going to perceive me then. It was just what happened in the game, almost that stuck throughout my career then. And was that difficult at times, the fame side of things? <laughs> you use it to your advantage sometimes, don't you? I mean, I rarely got sent off, so people probably thought I was a bit whiter than white, but 
I don't know. I think later on in life, I mean, I, was, I used to uh, room with Jamie Carragher and he used to just shake his head all the time because we got up to, we were like the jokers of the dressing room. We got up to loads of pranks and he used to always look at me and said, Jesus, if people knew what you were like, really, they would be <laughs> astonished because obviously that was the persona that the, that the press gave me at the time. And don't get me wrong, I wasn't you know, staggering out of pubs and things like that when I was 18, but I was... Uh, I, I, I was going to give it a different colour then. I wasn't whiter than white, though. Yeah. At your peak, I don't know, it would be interesting what you class your peak as, but it was electric. You must have felt, I can burn every defender around me and, you know, invincible almost. Because Jamie Carey was just talking about you the other night. Did you see it? I saw it, yeah. 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 I was cringing. He was saying... But he's right. <laughs> you were basically the most um, confident man alive, was his sense, you know? Yeah, I suppose. Well, I was, yeah. I suppose I was the most, one of the most confident. I mean, that's what got me to where I got to. I think mental strength is, is everything. We all get given what we get given. I was small and slight but quick. Um, you know, there's all different shapes and sizes, but at the end of the day, it's what's between your ears. I mean, people have been very, very average players, and I've seen them, and they've got to dizzy heights in their career just through pure mental strength and grit. And I genuinely, at that age, I won't say the words, but I genuinely thought I was that. You know, when I was 15, um, I didn't think there was a player on the planet that was as good as me as a 15-year-old. And we played international football. We beat, beat them all. I scored against them all. Brazil at Wembley and, you know, all these teams and broke every record at, at every international level and every club, you know, all the club levels and things like that through how old I was playing up and, and how many goals. So, yeah, from being a kid to being 22, 23, then I probably had that mindset, let's say. And in that era that you came through in it, some of the best footballers we've ever seen, did you realise that at the time? Like the likes of Gerard, it's Scholes, Rooney, like did you realise that around you even when you were coming through, say, the ranks in Liverpool? Yeah, I think, I mean, Steven Gerrard was in my year. We, we were at Liverpool since we were, we were babies, really. So I knew he was a great player. I was in the team a lot earlier than Stevie. Um, probably my body was ready for it a little bit more mentally. I was, I was there, Stevie came through later. But we always knew he was going to be exceptional. Um, of course, we had the, the generation, the Manchester United players, mm -hmm. but the likes of Scholes and Bex and everyone else were, were all a fair few years older than me. So in my year, it was probably, I mean, the likes of Rio and Lampard are a year or two older than me. But in my year at, the, at that point, you know, Rooney was still 13 or something when I was yeah. breaking through. So, yeah, so I came through the ranks. I don't think there was any surprise that, you know, from within the football community that I was going to uh, be breaking through at some point. Uh, and that point was uh, as a 17-year-old in the Liverpool first team. And, yeah, at that point, I was just as I said earlier, mentally ready to go. And um, in my first season, won the golden boot in the Premier League. In the second season, won the golden boot. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that everyone will do in their career. But I think, though that, winning two golden boots in your first two years as, an, as a baby, really, going into a team and, and with the great strikers around at the time, the, the Shearers, the Sheringhams, all those, you know, great players, Ian Wrights and... Robbie Fowlers and all those players. I don't. I think that was sort of 
probably what when I look back now, I think to myself, that probably won't get done again. Yeah. What age were you when you realised, oh my God, that blistering pace that I had is gone? Well, it wasn't a, like an overnight thing. Because right. I, I thought there was a serious injury. No, no, you're, you're, you're dead right. Um, there was. I won, I won the Ballon d'Or at 21. Yeah. I think I was past... <laughs> I think I was, I was past my best then. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. I, no, not necessarily past my best. I think I was massively compromised then. I snapped my hamstring in two at 19. And if you do that nowadays, you have surgery and you're pretty much fixed. Because I did it again um, in the cup final for Manchester United. Uh, later on in my career, snapped my other one. <laughs> I snapped my left one and had surgery the next day and, uh, and everything was fine. Right. But, um, but when I did my right one, if you, you know, put it plainly, you have three muscles in your, in your hamstring and, and when one ruptures, it recoils and, and, and it reattaches there and reattaches there. So I've got two hamstrings in my right leg and three in my left. And I have had that since I was 19. So I'm basically a third down of power uh, from being 19. Now, you get away with it when you're young, when your muscles are still adaptable and strong and, and you know, but it does gradually slow you down. And then, of course, when you're thrusting forward as fast as you can and you're getting a different ratio of power going through each leg, all of a sudden you start getting little pulls and little and your groin and everything starts going. So that was the period I had. Everything was going from the age of 20 to 23. I was just having loads of little problems. And the only way your body can stop that is to slow down. So now, naturally, my body was just going slower um, from, from that age onwards. So that is probably the biggest regret in my career. It's a, one of the biggest elements of, of pride in that I was still playing at the top level when I was 32, because I really shouldn't have been. Um, but also, even though I'm pretty proud of that, I'm regretful that, Jesus, if I hadn't have had that injury, where would that have taken me? So, or if it had been five years later when science would have made that they could repair it, as it is, I was just left with, with a, a, a hamstring to heal that was never going to heal. So your whole game is, is pace and you're out there on the pitch and I suppose mentally you think, you know, I can do it, but physically your body's saying, no, no chance. Absolutely. The, the, the mental, I was listening to the guys before and uh, Karen talking about... Um, retiring I was it, it was mental torture for me for a long part of my career I absolutely love the game but coming off and, and, and Paul Scholes having the ball let's say or Steven Gerrard having the ball and knowing that that is my game running in there and nobody's going to catch me knowing that that is just my natural instinct that has been with me for 20 years that's all I've ever done and then coming off thinking, oh no, that's too big a space. If I sprint into there, that's a 40 meter sprint. I'm gonna snap my hamstring if I do that. I've gotta come short for... So I had to totally adapt my game to being just a, you know, a link player. And then I had to turn my game into an absolute predator. So just be lethal in the box. 
So I was basically, for the second half of my career, just a goal scorer. Link play and get in the box. And it's fine, it's great, I'm sure, you know, like you're still playing in the Premier League and everything, what you're complaining about, but when you had so much more, mm -hmm. that the, the mental pain of not being able to just go with your instinct and just play football off the cuff, which is what it was all about, about mm. then that's, that really hurt me mentally. And, you know, by the end, I just couldn't wait to, to get out. I was almost embarrassed that I wasn't the player that I was anymore. And I didn't want people seeing me not being, you know, what I was. I remember you were over in Dublin and I interviewed you. It was a long time ago, but you talked about your time at Stoke and being conscious of younger players looking at you and going, is that Michael Owen? And, that is and it just, yeah, and it, that leads on from really that, that last answer. I was, I was almost at the end thinking, don't bring me on. You know, I was, I was I, I, I'm just not as good as I was and I don't want people seeing me being, you know, and as I say, I could still, you know, I, in those last few years, I was um, coming on for Manchester United, scoring a goal against City in the night. You know, I scored a hat-trick in the... <laughs> I could still do it. I could still score a goal. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you put me in front now, I can still score a goal. I've still got the instinct. I know where it's going to go better than anyone else. But I just can't get my body in that position. Mm -hmm. So well, you could see it with, I mean, with that Man United goal. I think we've a few United. I can't even work out what's going on with the, uh, <laughs> the booing and the cheering. Uh, you could see with that goal, the touch and a couple of Newcastle. The touch and the finish was perfect. You know. Yeah, I mean, instinctive-wise and finishing-wise, I could still do it. But as I say, that when you had something else, um, and. You know, that, it, was, it, was just, it was just hard to, to, to do mentally. To be a thinking footballer as opposed to a, an instinctive mm. footballer, that's what I'm trying to say. And I ended up having to be a thinker, having to, to do things that I wasn't really built to do, holding the ball up and linking play. You know, if you're going to get that, then put, you know, someone else, a Berbatov or a Heskey or something else. It wasn't my game. Um, so that was, that was tough for the second half of my career. Was there ever a moment that you wanted to say, look, jack it all in, like early on, say in your early 20s, when you said you couldn't play like you wanted to? No, I love the game so much that I was never, you know, in my, even, even when I did my hamstring, I still had great success afterwards because, as I say, I was still young and, and, and still had a lot of power in my muscles. And so it, it still carried me for a few years. I still could, you know went to Real Madrid and still felt that I was at the top of my game. Um, when I came back to Newcastle, still felt great in that first season. But then once I did my knee, coming back from that, my knee was perfect. But then I just felt as if I started losing speed at a, a rate of knots. And so around 26, something like that, I felt as if I was starting to really lose speed. And that was sort of when it started becoming quite mentally challenging. Did your motivation drop? I could see how it might be difficult to eat perfectly and train perfectly. Yeah. You yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely that. When you, f when you don't feel good about yourself, when you don't feel like that you're going to be the top goal scorer, you're going to be the golden boot winner, you start slipping. Yeah. And I, again, listening to Wrighty before about Arsene Wenger, one or two people might have thought, I'm not doing this. You know, but all of a sudden, if everyone starts doing it, you start feeling the guilty party. And that it was a, almost a, 
a role's reversed, when you're not feeling as if you're going to play every week, when you're not feeling as if you're sharp and going to score and you're not chasing something that's big, then everything slips, your mental capacity, everything, your training, and, and you just start you know, lowering your levels, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The move to Manchester United, you mentioned it there. I think you've explained perfectly your rationale and it makes sense uh, to most of us. What's been the legacy of that, though, with Liverpool fans at this stage? Is, do you get a warm reception at Anfield or is it, is it lukewarm as a result or mixed? Yeah, no, no, absolutely fine. I mean, I go to Anfield a lot. Um, <laughs> you know, I... <laughs> I... Um, I think everybody knows the story by now. I mean, I uh, left Liverpool with a real heavy heart. Uh, going to Real Madrid was something that I never planned on doing at all, but going, there, <laughs> going, uh, going to Real Madrid at the time, everybody was, you know, Real Madrid were the best team. Well, Real Madrid, Barcelona, they, the Spanish league at the time was, was great. The Galacticos, you're talking Rooney, you're talking... Sorry, uh, you're talking uh, Ronaldo, Ronaldo, you're talking... Um, Figo. Figo, Beckham. Uh, Zidane, mm -hmm. uh, all the great players. So I just thought, I've got, to, I've got to try that. And I looked at Ian Rush that a few years earlier, he went to, or quite a few years late, earlier, he went to Juventus and then came back. And I just thought, I'll never get this opportunity again to go and I can always come back was sort of the overriding thought. So I thought, I'll go and try it for a year or two. And, um, and of course, did the year, had a great time, loved every minute of it, but really wanted to come back to, to Liverpool. Um, Unfortunately, Liverpool wouldn't pay what Newcastle were paying or get close to paying that. So I had a massive decision whether to go to Newcastle or stay at Real Madrid. But I went to Newcastle on the proviso that I could put in the contract and every year, at the end of every season, I could go back to Liverpool for a set fee. And of course, that looked as if it was going to come true after the first year, but then I did my knee in the World Cup. Uh, and then it never happened since. So every, at the end of every summer, on the phone to Brendan Rodgers, on the phone to all of them. Um, and so was Jamie Carragher and so was Steven Gerrard trying to push things through and trying to get me back. But of course, times moves on and, and Torres had signed and Suarez signs. And so they never really needed me back at that point, which is fair enough. I mean, I made the decision to go to Madrid, so there's absolutely no hard feelings. And then when I finished at, at Newcastle, I'm obviously on a Bosman. Again, same thing. Um, on the phone to Jamie Carragher, go and have a word with Brendan Rodgers. But again, at the time, just didn't need um, a strike or didn't need me at the time. So that's when you've just got to, you know, look after yourself, go to the best. The, fu the funny thing is, is the three teams that were, were in for me at the time were Hull City, who were in the relegation time uh, area, were Everton and were Man United. So I thought, no matter what happens here, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get slaughtered. But I think most people, most sensible people, realise that I would have done anything. I would have walked back to, to Liverpool, of course. But, um, but that was not to be, so absolutely no regrets. Does it hurt not to finish your career there? At Liverpool? At Liverpool? Yeah, in a way. But listen, when I speak to Cara, when I speak to Stevie, like real mates of mine at the time, they're like, when I was coming back to the England squads or when they were on the foot, they were like, what was it like? What, what's it like? How good was that playing for? for they were intrigued yeah. to, to, to play for, uh, for me playing out there. So part of me thinks, yes, 
you know, I would have loved to have been a one club man, but part of me thinks I had experiences. And the other thing that I sort of comforts me as well is that Liverpool, yeah, not only that, but um, <laughs> Liverpool saw me at my absolute best. Yeah. And I wasn't great at 27, 28. I, wasn't, I wouldn't have probably got in that Suarez and Torres were way better than me at that stage of my career. So would it have been sour? Would I have got, you know, kicked out anyway at 20, you know, sold on or whatever. So part of me thinks Liverpool saw me and had me at my absolute peak. So, you know, that's uh, another thing that's sort of reasonably comforting. <laughs> and when Jamie Carragher and Stephen Gerrard are phoning you up saying, what's it like at Real Madrid? What's it like at Real Madrid? <laughs> it was unbelievable. I mean, I had a, I had a great time. Um, the standard of play, the players there, the, the stadium, the weather, the white kit, prancing out like a 11 angels. It was onto, nice. You know, it's, it was, it's just a magical, mythical team, that the Galacticos at the time. Um, I had some great times. I mean, scoring in, the, in, in El Clasico, I, I always remember I was uh, sat in the players' lounge afterwards and all my family had came over to watch the game and we were in the players' lounge and the, the TVs were, were rolling, we were having a drink afterwards and uh, my dad was sat right next to me and the, the goals went in, I think, Etu, Ronaldinho were the two scorers for Barcelona and Zidane, Ronaldo, Raul and Owen were the four scorers <laughs> for... And, and we'd watched the goals going in and then once the goals had finished, it just, you know... It, the graphic came up, Real Madrid four, Barcelona two, and the goal scorers underneath. And it was only then I realised, Jesus, look at those six goal scorers. <laughs> and I nudged my dad and he looked at me and went, I think you made a good decision there. That was almost like, <laughs> that was almost the, the moment. And then, that was like the, the peak Galactico period. Was this a dressing room that lack discipline and like superstars doing their own, thi their own thing or was it fairly well run? I think the players did, you know, did pretty much run it to a certain extent. Certainly the manager wouldn't have been a real big disciplinarian. Um, I think it was policed by the players, like most dressing rooms are really. And these great players aren't great players because they toss it off all the time and they just do this and do that. I mean, you're talking Zidane, one of the greatest players of all time. Roberto Carlos, you know, Brazilian Ronaldo. I mean, we're talking the greats here. They're not, and as much as everyone likes to think, oh yeah, they just must have done nothing. They're greats because they, you know, they know what to, what to do. Um, it's fair to say that different cultures have different, you know, ways of going. So Brazilians in, in, in a large part that I've met, the likes of Ronaldo, Roberto Carlos, they do like a party. And, uh, <laughs> So, so you, but you always get one or two players like that in the team. Um, but in general, I, I don't think it was, you know, I don't think it was a dressing room that was out of control and whatever. Um, but certainly training sessions weren't military precision, you know, precision. You'd, you could come in five minutes late, you could try to nutmeg a few people in training. It was quite a, a loose and lax atmosphere compared to some. However, it was still done properly. And when you walked in there for the first time, obviously you were a massive name, but were you starstruck at all, looking at the likes of Ronaldo and Figo? 
I wasn't at the, that time of my career. I I really wasn't. As I said, I was. I I know. I, the one thing I wanted to do, and bear in mind, as I say, I walked in there having been top scorer in the Premier League for a couple of seasons, having just won the Ballon d'Or. I went in there thinking I deserve to be in here. I'm as good as anyone in world football was my just. That's just what my attitude was at the time. Because at that time, I believed I was. But I remember thinking. I just cannot wait for the first training session. Because of all these big names, you know, forget the crowd, forget fans, forget the manager even, forget anything. If you can't gain the respect of your teammates, then you've got nothing. I wanted that first training session so bad. I wanted to be on the team with Zidane and Figo and everyone else, and actually them pass me the ball, and that they immediately have respect for me. Or when they're in position, you know, in possession, the positions I take up, the main thing you've got to do is get their respect because on match day, if they ain't going to give you the ball in tight situations, if they're not you know, confident in what you're going to do with the ball, then you've got nothing. So I just remember that first week thinking, I'm going to be on it now. I'm going to gain everybody's respect as a proper player. I'm going to show them that I'm a player. And I just remember that because everything else will flow after that. If you're part of the team, if, if you've gained their respect, then they'll pass you the ball, they'll feed you in, they'll do everything. And then the fans will like you and the manager will like you, but you've got to get the respect of the players first. In training and in matches, you must have seen Zidane do the most ridiculous things. Zidane was the best player I've ever played with. Um, he was absolutely born to be a footballer. It was almost, you know, when you're a kid and you've got the football at the end of a string and it just keeps coming back to you. I mean, it was like he played with an invisible string. No matter what touch he took, it was always the same distance away from him. The way he moved, like if a ball comes into my chest and I want to go over there, or most people, you, you chest it, you wait for it to drop, and then you take another touch and then you're off. He just had this amazing, where, wherever the ball came, if it came up around his ear or anywhere, he could just take it into the direction that he wanted to in one touch and it'd be in perfect control, you know, just always three, four foot ahead of him. He was just incredible, left foot, right foot, fast. He was so fast, so strong. He could do a Cruyff turn out of a little hole and then and burst away and the strength of the guy as well. Uh, I was quite scared of him, to be honest, because when I first <laughs> walked in, he's got these really deep eyes, you know, these, and, he, and I walked... And, it was a nightmare because in the train, changing ground, the door was here and it was quite a long, thin dressing room and I was like far left, down the bottom. And as soon as I walked in, sort of Zidane was on the left, but up here. And he used to just sit there. Everyone else was like playing keepy-ups and whatever. And he used to just sit there like this all, you know, for about half an hour, just staring at everyone. And I thought when I first came in that he must hate me because he just stared at me all the, the whole way. I was petrified of him for the first month or two until I realised he did to everyone, but... Um, but no, he was just incredible. What a player he was. Mm. Did you think he was going to be the Champions League, multi-Champions League winning manager? Were there any signs of that? Well, I didn't really see him going into management. I didn't, you know, he was not very vocal at all on the, fo- on the, on the training pitch. It probably didn't help because he didn't speak English either. But, um, <laughs> but he certainly wasn't that vocal on the pitch. But he had a real air about him. I mean, of all the players there, and I'm talking, you know, R9, Brazilian Ronaldo was, un- what, I mean, a legend. When I was growing up watching him, I thought, 
Jesus Christ, I think I'm one of the best about. If that's the level, I ain't got a chance of being a professional footballer, let alone. I mean, he was off the scale good. But even someone like him, it, it was Zidane that had this, just this air, this presence about him, just the, the, the grace, you know, how graceful he was moving with the ball. And it was just, he, he always commanded the most respect, I felt, in the dressing room. So from that point of view, I can see him, could have seen him being a leader, but, um, but he certainly wasn't very vocal out on the pitch. Uh, just a final one, I suppose. You were very experienced by the time you got to see Alex Ferguson doing his thing. What struck you about why was this guy so far ahead of the pack? Um, I was absolutely astounded. I think, was it 26 years he was manager of Manchester United? When you talk to the Giggsies and the Skulls and, and all the rest of them, they used to say that he'd be in at six o'clock, he'd be painting the white lines, he'd be putting the nets up, he'd be scouting all the players, he'd be running the academy, he'd be doing all the players' contracts, he'd be picking the team on a sack. He would literally run the club from top to bottom. Um, now, when I went to the club, of course, he'd been manager 24, 23, 24 years, he was very much delegating. And, of course, Manchester United have gone from, you know, what they were 25, 26 years ago to probably employing 30 people to employing 3,000 people. I mean, it's a totally different organisation. So I don't blame him having to delegate. But he certainly didn't have the energy. And he's got a horse at my stable, so we, we often talk about it when he comes down. He didn't have the energy back in, you know, at the end of his career to be doing the academy, to be doing all the things he used to. So he just totally focused on that first team on a Saturday. He didn't coach during the week. He, sat, he stood there and watched training. But on a Saturday, he came into his own. And when you see the teams that he won the league with at the end of his career, and then you see the fall off as soon as he left, I mean, it says it all. He's just staggering how, how he gets every little last bit out of all his players. Um, you know, and it was just an amazing thing for me to hear about what he did at the start and then witness that change. He still had the respect of everybody, he still knew everybody's name at the training ground, but he just had total control, total trust in everybody. So if you're a doctor or you're a physio, then you run the medical department, I'm gonna trust you and leave mm -hmm. you to it. If you're the first team coach, you're gonna coach the first team, it does what it says on the tin, you know, that's the, the clues in the name. If you're, you know, if you're in the canteen, then you're gonna cut the foot. So he just trusts everybody and he was brilliant at delegating at the end. And I see that as a real, good trait considering he did everything right at the outset. Where would he rate in the managers that you've had? <laughs> well, I mean, his record suggests he's the best. Um, I think... <laughs> I mean, he has to be the best, doesn't he? It's not even, it's not even a, a, a Even in terms one, really. of man management? And yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I had some really influential people that manage uh, me over the years. I mean, Glenn Hoddle at England was probably, in terms of tactics and know-how, he was, he, was, uh, he was probably the, the, the most in, intelligent or understanding of the game. But I think Gerard Houllier um, at the time, I was listening to uh, intently to Wrighty because when Arsene Wenger came in, it was the same time as basically, that was the reason that Gerard Houllier came in. We were watching this team from down in London and they were running faster than us, further than us, never getting injured. And we were thinking, what's happening down there? Are they all on drugs or something? They're just flying. 
and uh, Gerard Houllier came in and, and changed everything. And uh, brought, I think he brought Liverpool into the new century. You were staying right there, but a round of applause, please. That was fascinating. Mike alone, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>